Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. The authority of Luke Rakestraw. What a scandalous sermon title for the culture we inhabit. It's scandalous for two reasons. The first is a very understandable reason. The church in our day is replete with horrific, traumatic, at times abusive incidents of church authority. The stories of fallen pastors, I think you would admit, are becoming overwhelmingly frequent. So I understand reservation towards the church authority. It's appropriate. The other reason for our aversion to authority is less appropriate. We live in an age of radical individualism and human autonomy that manifests itself in a disdain for authority, particularly institutional authority, particularly institutional religious authority. Let me read a quote to you from Brad Pitt, wherein he explains why he is into, and this is very popular on day, you know this, why Brad Pitt is into spirituality but not organized religion. This is what he says. I call religion oppression because it stifles any kind of personal, individual freedom. And the article says this. To Pitt, the parable of the prodigal son is an authoritarian tale told to keep people in line. This, he explains, is a story which says if you go out and try to find your own voice and find what works for you and what makes sense for you, then you are going to be destroyed and you will be humbled and you will not be alive again until you come home to the Father's ways. That is oppression." End quote. What a fascinating take on the prodigal son, this parable that we love so dearly. That he sees it as an oppressive parable that stifles individuality and expression. And I don't think he is alone in that. I think he is emblematic of where we all find ourselves. And so into this cultural setting, we gather this morning for the most counter-cultural ritual I can think of. The ordination of a minister to whom you will vow submission. Whether for good or bad reasons, you may view this moment as weird at best. I know a lot of churches in our day don't do ordination ceremonies and take vows and all that stuff. I understand it may be weird to you, but perhaps even offensive at worst. I would like to ask all of us to suspend all presuppositions 
and all experiences that you may have and give me a chance to unpack a vision of church authority that we see in our passage this morning, wherein Peter exhorts the minister on how they are to exercise authority. Certainly, Peter believes in submission to elders of a local church, but it would seem to us that it is far more important to Peter how those elders exercise authority. Let's follow his admonition through three points. The mode of church authority, the manner of church authority, and the motive of church authority. So mode, manner, and motive. Let's start with the mode. Let's just take a brief moment here to to make sure that everyone, I, I don't wanna take anything for granted here, make sure everyone understands the biblical structure of church authority. Peter says in verse one, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. The word elder in the New Testament is a title given to those who are set apart as the ordained authority within a local church. The Greek word is presbyter, from which we get the title of our tradition, Presbyterianism. We are an elder-run tradition. So the pattern of a church authority is this. Christ first gave authority to the apostles. That's what the scriptures mean when it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. That's what we mean in our creed when we say we are an apostolic church with Christ as the cornerstone. Now the foundation of the apostles is not the apostles themselves. They were actually quite unimpressive men. Instead, the authority is built upon the witness of the apostles. That's why Peter says here that he was a witness of Christ's sufferings. He's invoking his authority as an apostle. And the witness of the apostles is canonized in Scripture. The New Testament is the written witness of the apostles. So when we say that the foundation of the church is the apostles, we are saying the foundation is our Holy Scripture. That is the highest authority of church authority. But the apostles did something else. They appointed elders in every church that was planted and entrusted to these presbyters authority over that church. Now, elder does not speak to maturity of age. In fact, there were teenage elders in the New Testament. Instead, it speaks to maturity of character and calling. And you can go read the characteristics of that maturity in Titus 1. And Luke has been examined according to those attributes. So the mode of church authority is this. Jesus is the head of the church. The head entrusted the authority to the apostles, which is canonized in Scripture, who then entrusted local authority to elders. And that elder authority over, over local churches remains to this day. And we see this in no uncertain terms, their authority in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's very extreme language, especially in our culture, again. Elders are literally asked to shepherd the flock that belongs to Jesus. So Luke, let those words land on you with the holy weight they deserve. You are choosing to embrace the highest responsibility here on earth. And to the flock, let those words land on you with the holy weight they deserve. You are choosing to submit to Luke, as though he is a shepherd given to you from the good shepherd himself. This verse should cause the, both the elder and the flock to tremble for different reasons. And Peter recognizes the weight of his words, which is why he takes a moment to make clear exactly what this authority 
should look like. Let's move to the manner of church authority. What Peter does here is define expectations for church authority through three contrasting statements. You may have noticed that. He has a pattern here. He says, not like this, but like this. And he repeats it three times. And each of them is meant to expose a common failure within church authority. The first is this from verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Here, Peter is combating the notion of obligation. Now, obligation may seem like a strange reason to be a minister of the church, but many do it for that very reason. They do it because they feel like they have to do it. Yes, at times that is external pressure, perhaps from a congregation, but more often it is born of our um, own insecurities and guilts and ambitions or whatever else creates this feeling that I have to do this to prove something to myself and to others. But Peter is saying, you don't have to do this. And Luke, you don't have to do this. Christ's church will be fine without you, me, any of us. Obligation is a horrible reason for ordination, and you will get burned out very quickly if that is why you're doing this. Instead, Peter says, do this willingly as God would have you. Meaning, do this because you believe God has called you to do this and for no other reason. Okay, now let's look at the next contracting statement. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, in the early church, that shameful gain was often associated with money because um, elders and and pastors were able to uh, raise funds without any oversight. And so it happened in the New Testament where they would exploit that system. Um, in our context, I can def definitively say that's not the case with Luke. He's a gifted young man. He'd be making a lot more money in another vocation. But money is not the only temptation of what Peter calls shameful gain. There is a reason why so many narcissists go into the ministry. It offers the very thing the narcissist craves. Glory, influence, vanity, power, self-righteousness, and so forth. The point Peter is making is that authority cannot be motivated by selfish ends. And Luke, it can't. Test yourself one more time before they lay hands on you. I know your motives are mixed and impure, all of ours, ours are, and the grace of Jesus can handle our duplicity, but the foundational reason, the core motivation for ordination must not be shameful gain. It is a fearful thing to stand before Jesus after exploiting his flock for selfish ends. Instead, Peter says, you are to shepherd eagerly. I agree with most commentators who translate that word as eager to serve. The point is that this is a strange authority that is assumed not for what you can gain, but for what you can give. Not to take, but to serve. What a countercultural picture of authority. In every other realm, people assume the weight and responsibility and burdens and sufferings and everything else that comes with the mantle of leadership, they take that on because it offers them something and they view that trade-off as worth it. But here there is no gain, at least not now. You accept the immense burdens of authority and the trade-off is that you have to give your life away to those under your authority. Pastoral ministry, rightly done, takes all the burdens while the flock gets all the gains. It is not a good deal, earthly speaking. 
But this is the expectation of church authority nonetheless. All right, final contrasting statement here in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Notice that Peter does not compromise the extent of church authority. He does say those under your charge. It is what it is. By virtue of your holy ordination, you are in charge. So this is not compromising authority, but it is speaking, is speaking instead to the way that authority is done and that makes all the difference. Not domineering over them. Now, how do we distinguish that? Because the pastor has to rebuke, reprove, teach, train, discipline. So how do you know if that is domineering or healthy authority? Well, look at the antithesis here. Not domineering, but being example to the flock. This is really important. Peter doesn't see the antithesis of domineering leadership as not having any expectations for those that they lead. Instead, he sees it as embodying what you expect of them. How do you exercise authority without domineering with a me-first mentality? You call them to repentance with your repentance. You call them to vulnerability with your vulnerability. You call them to holiness with your holiness. You call them to give sacrificially with your sacrificial giving. You call them to control their tongues with your refusal to gossip, slander. You call them to love the poor with your love of the poor. Luke, the way you know you are not domineering is that you demand nothing from this church that you are not already doing. And church, in authority you should never ever submit to is one that demands of you what they are unwilling to do. Okay, now, so we set aside our presuppositions and experiences of church authority. With these three qualifying statements in mind, allowing our vision's authority to be formed less by experience and more by this scripture, now I turn to the congregation, and you're gonna do this here in a moment, flock of Jesus, and ask you this, Will you submit to this authority? I'm not asking you to submit to authority the way the world does authority. I'm asking, can you submit to authority like this? Your answer still may be no. For whatever reason, you can't do the church membership submission authority thing. Well, you have another problem on your hands if that's you. And it's this, we need authority. We were made for authority. In fact, authority is inevitable. Shunning external authority is only a choice to submit to the internal authority of self. When people say, I'm into spirituality, but not organized religion, they are saying, I'm into organized individual religion, which always proves just as tyrannical as all other forms of authority. Let me quote Brad Pitt again. So he says, I start asking a lot of questions about my own life, and it's not fun. I've always been at war with myself. For right or wrong, I don't know how to explain it more. And what I'm doing is just trying to grow comfortable with being in that war. You see, he's trapped. He casts off external authority only to discover the chaos, the mayhem of his own self-tyranny. And this is true for all of us. 
Perhaps authority has wronged you, but have you wronged you? Perhaps authority has been harmful. Have you been harmful? If you're anything like me, then you have proven to be the worst possible authority over your life. What you need, what I need, what we all so desperately need is a different kind of authority. And that authority, at the end of the day, is Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is all about authority. He does not invite you to make a decision, but to bow in submission. But his authority is the perfect embodiment of what Peter is describing in our passage. And then our good shepherd calls us to submit to his ordained under shepherds as the manifestation of his authority on earth. Now I know Luke well, very well. He's a good man. He's no Jesus. He needs Jesus as much as you do. But I am putting my name and my integrity on the line here. I, we, your elders, would never place him before you if we were not 100% confident that he will seek to lead you as Jesus has led him. I love you too much. I love this church too much to ever ask you to submit to unhealthy authority. But yes, I am asking you to submit nonetheless. Now, I'd like to ask one more important question briefly directed at just you, Luke. With Peter's redefined vision of authority, which is nothing less than laying your life down for the sheep like your savior before you, why would anyone in their right mind ever accept ordination in the church of Jesus Christ? Let's briefly close with the motive of church authority. Verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now notice something very important about the reward here. When will you have it? Not now. If you think that this calling will reward you now, prepare to be massively disappointed. It has its moments, no doubt. But by and large, ordained ministry makes life harder, not easier. What is waiting you on the other side of this Sunday is the never-ending drama and trauma of congregational care. What awaits you are judgments and decisions that will keep you up all night. What awaits you is criticism, disappointment, perhaps even maligned and slandered by the very ones you love. What awaits you is the crosshairs of satanic activity. And most painful, what awaits you is a newfound stark realization of your unworthiness. Your doubts, fears, sins, insecurities, and utter hypocrisy will shine like never before. So what are you doing here? Why would you ever choose this? Let me try to tell you why. More precise, I'll let Peter tell you why. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't know what that means. But I do know that there is a unique glory waiting those who would dare embark upon this unique calling. I know what we what we sang here and for all the saints. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. 
the king of glory passes on his way. The king is going to stop and look you in your eyes with pride in his eyes. And those whom you faithfully served in ministry will rise and applaud and shout their amens of gratitude to your coordination. And I know in that moment it will be worth it. Luke, don't do this for earthly reward. Don't do this for them. Do this for Jesus. Himself, with nail-scarred hands, is going to place upon you a crown of glory. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, thank you for the church, so maligned in our days and sometimes deserving that criticism. And yet your church goes forth in triumph. Generation of generation after generation of those you have called to lead your flock. I pray that this Sunday would be a renewal of that vision for Luke, yes, and for us as a congregation, that we would celebrate your goodness in giving us godly, humble, faithful men like Luke, that you continue to raise them up to lead us. As we enter now into the vows and charges, I pray that they would be done with the holy weight that they deserve, and that Luke and Celeste in particular, yes, that they would feel the weight of this moment, but that you would give them a foretaste of the crown of glory that is coming their way. Thank you for him. Thank you for this church. Thank you that you continue to raise up leadership within. We consecrate the next few minutes to you, Lord Jesus, and your glory. Amen.